listening to Holy Crit with your hosts, award-winning game designer Ross Watson and the branding strategist for geeks, gamers, and techies, Sheena Vandevanter. Holy Crit is your insider's guide to tabletop games, designers, and the conventions that love them. Hi, I'm Sheena Vandevanter. I'm Avanel Wing. I'm Stephanie Noodleman. Welcome to Holy Crit! It's girls' night here on Holy Crit. I am so pleased to have two illustrious guests with me today while Ross is off um, doing things at cons in Germany. We have with us today Avanel Wing and Stephanie Noodleman. So for those of you at home who haven't heard of these lovely ladies, Avanel, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, I am with Double Exposure. We run Dexcon and Dreamation. We run Metatopia, the game design festival, and we run First Exposure. And I also wear like 10 other hats in the industry. (laughs) (laughs) Stephanie, how about you? Hi, um, I'm Stephanie Noodleman. I am currently an education policy grad student and also a game designer. So I come to game design from the perspective of being a former high school teacher. And I like to think of it basically as lesson planning and make the games that I design as reproducible and runnable as possible for other people. Wow, that's really amazing. Well, I am so glad to have you both with me today. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about safety and harassment and some of those other tricky issues that happen at conventions. So I'd love to hear about some of your experiences and Avi as a con coordinator i'd love to hear some of the ideas and thoughts that you've had that you've put in place to help make people feel safer uh so because we are a convention community we've had and i've been running conventions for 20 years i've had the luxury of being able to iterate processes and to Mm -hmm. sort of learn as we go um and Honestly, the the key that we've found is that establishing that it is okay to execute boundaries has been the most powerful thing that we've been able to provide our community. That it's okay to say, I'm not okay with the way you're behaving, or to go and find someone and say, I need an intervention because somebody's behaving in a way that is not comfortable. Um, you'd be amazed by how many people don't realize that they can can just say that's not okay. Yeah, well, certainly in the news, we've we've heard recently there's been sort of this uprising of women coming forward and saying, oh, yeah, I've been harassed for years and, you know, oh, yeah, I've been raped before or I've been, you know, groped or whatever the case may be in this this Me Too hashtag has kind of gotten crazy. And, you know, it's on the one hand, it's it's kind of emotionally hard to hear about other people's experiences, but at the same time, I think it's really great that we're bringing this to light and addressing it, not only in the con community, but in the larger world. So um, I'd love to hear some of the policies and procedures that you specifically have in place. Like if I was, you know, to go to Metatopia and some creeper decides to grope me by the bathroom, what would I do? You would come to either my safety and morale team uh, or to the registration desk, or you would flag anybody in a bright green badge. Um, I have to say that in general, um, I'd like to draw back a little bit and talk more specifically about safer spaces because specific specific instances of harassment where it's so clear that you go to an 
an authority or a referee and say, okay, I just got groped and I need somebody to, I need to process this is so rare. It's the, it's the smaller stuff. It's the baked in things and the things actually that Stephanie have been helping me with that are more regular and harder to manage Right. Because someone gropes somebody, you go to them and you, you, you work with the victim and there are some pretty well-known, broadly known protocols. You, you let the victim take the lead. You let them tell you what their comfort level is in confronting their assailant. But the, the building the scaffolding so that somebody knows that they can come to the convention and say, I've got a problem and creating the processes where that is treated with dignity and patience and kindness and empathy is all way before you get to the point that someone's been groped. And so the background stuff sure. is more important. Absolutely. Stephanie, um, Abby mentioned that you've been helping her. What, what have you been doing to help contribute to building that scaffolding? Uh, yeah, and Abby, thank you um, for uh, acknowledging me for that. I appreciate it. So I, um, especially as a former teacher, I take a lot of joy uh, out of building safety into the games that I design. And um, Abby recently helped me realize that the kinds of safety tools, techniques, and norms that I build into games can actually be sort of taken out of the games that I've made and then just be universally applied to other games and like tacked on to other games. Um, so I am a huge fan of, uh, for example, Sarah Lynn Bowman's OK Check-In, um, where you just ask people if they're OK, if they seem not OK using the OK symbol, and then they can respond with either a thumbs up, a thumbs down, or like a wishy-washy symbol, which basically means like thumbs down, but I feel vulnerable and don't want to say that I'm not doing OK. Um, uh -huh. And that kind of um, unspoken conversation in games becoming a norm, I think is something that can be really powerful for um, just getting people to uh, f find it normal to ask each other if they're okay, and then also find it normal to say that they're not okay before something major happens. Um, wow, that's impressive. So, so how do you bake that into a game? Is that something you as the leader just make sure is happening at any games that you're playtesting, or is that something that's actually written into the rules? How, how do you go about that? So um, so recently my partner, John uh, Stavropoulos and I have been running Brody Atwater's Here's My Power Button um, a bunch of times at cons. And uh, what we've started doing is um, just like with that game as an example, because it's such an incredible game and Brody has done such an amazing job creating this content where uh, people can experience these really vulnerable connections with each other. John and I have deliberately baked in um, a bunch of different safety mechanics into the beginning of that game uh, so that people can use those tools during the game to lean into that really difficult content and also feel comfortable saying no to it. So uh, so we've actually made posters of, uh, of each of the safety mechanics with cute little emoji diagrams of what they are and how to use them in short descriptors that we literally put on the walls of the place wow. where we're playing. Because I think that um, a lot of the reason some people might push back against safety mechanics is it's just another thing they have to remember to do. So if you stick it in an emoji and stick it on the wall and actually use a lesson that I've created to teach these mechanics at the beginning of the game, it's less of a big deal because it's less um, like cognitive load for people to remember. 
Wow, that's really impressive. I love that. Now, we I have asked Stephanie if we can broaden that out and go from microcosm to macrocosm and start using some of those tools and some of those lesson plans on the convention-wide level. So, like, the yeah. OK check-in um, signs are going to end up in the bar at Metatopia so that people get the ability to start practicing that. So let's say I walk through the bar and I see something that could be someone that's cornered by someone that's a little tipsy and they need a rescue. I can do the okay sign and they can either go, oh God, get me out of here or give me a, no, no, I've got this. And I don't have mm-hmm. to guess and I don't have to walk up and pop the that bubble of, of communication, that bubble, the conversation bubble. If there's nothing wrong, I can just do it from across the room. Do you need me? No? Okay. I'll stay out of it. And if I walk by a second time and I still get the vibe that they need a check-in, maybe I'll come over. But if they've honestly got it, then we've used the okay check-in system. They've indicated that they're fine. Or they can indicate to me that they, they were fine then, but they do need someone to intervene now and just break that bubble so that they can escape cleanly. That makes so much sense to me. So just to be clear for other con runners out there listening, um, is this something, Stephanie, that you're going to make publicly available? Or is this something that's in the works now with double exposure that may become available later, like the posters and stuff? Is there a way for others of us, like Tufacabracon, to get a hold of <laughs> some of these materials? Um, so um, just to be clear and give credit where credit is due, uh, Sarah Lynn Bowman came up with the OK Check-In uh, in conjunction with uh, Magiscola, Maury Brown, Ben Morrow, uh, Book Schwartz. And um, John made the poster itself. I have uh, strongly advocated it, uh, advocated for the OK Check-In to be used in more circumstances. Um, I would be totally happy with the posters that we made, you know, being made available for other people, but I would certainly need to check with John and Sarah first. Absolutely. Well, and I am also going to take the opportunity to throw in that if conventions care about safety and are like, hey, let me drop you a small payment in recompense for the fact that they've done all this work Absolutely. and they're iterating this, right? This isn't a static process. This is mm-hmm. years of accumulated experience with nerd communities, with all the endemic problems in nerd communities and all the excuses about why we can't be better to each other. Um, and so these tools are finally coming into fruition in a very powerful way. Um, I actually, Stephanie, saw the OK check-in at Living Games even before New World Magiscola. And so it's definitely been an iterative process where people like Sarah, who was the powerhouse behind Living Games Conference, um, have been iterating this forward and testing these things. And... Honestly, we're just starting to realize that we can do the microcosm to macrocosm transition. Uh, and it's so powerful. I mean, a lot of this is all new information to me. I mean, we, we only started having a, a harassment policy, I think, in our second year. I mean, it's like one of those things where we knew it was important, but we didn't have it codified until we started talking to other people like you and like Donna Pryor and other um, con runners. It was like, oh, we really need to make sure that this is not just something that we're aware of in this nebulous way. We actually need to be proactive. We need to make sure that people are aware of what they can do. And, and this expands it beyond just having policies and procedures, but it's starting to change the behavior on a bigger level. So I absolutely applaud everyone who is participating in this. It's absolutely fantastic. 
So what are some other ways then that you are working to ensure that your conventions are safe spaces? Uh, so a call, a shout out to John, uh, Stephanie's partner, because John really for years pushed on the, there's no such thing as a safe space. There's a safer space. And so I want to be very okay. clear about the language here. I don't promise a safe space because we're dealing with humans and humans do stupid things and even the best hearted human can do something dumb or accidentally step on someone else's emotions. So part of, of what we do is talk about the fact that each person is responsible for their own experience. Um, and so building it into the community that it's okay to say I'm not all right and for people to be able to either disengage or to go find somebody to help them um, is a big part of that because if someone is dysregulating, they're not safe, they're not good for you know, they're not good for themselves. They're not good for the community. Giving them a space to be able to say that and say, I need to step away is a big part of what we do. Can I take this opportunity to talk about the self check-in and thank yes. you? Yes. Okay. Please. Um, so, uh, obviously I love Sarah's okay check-in and for me as a player and especially as an introvert who tends to get like overwhelmed by loud games for me sometimes yeah um sometimes for me uh responding with like am i okay or am i not okay i actually need a moment for myself to figure out if i'm okay before responding and so um for me and for my own safety and for my fellow introvert safety um i've started using this thing i'm calling the self check-in in games where uh, if you're not sure how you're feeling, and obviously like this can be applied to real life and not just games. Of course, games are also real life, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I, I've started using uh, this mechanic called the self-check-in where if you're not sure how you're feeling, especially if you're playing a character who has different boundaries and different comfort levels than you, um, then you literally step back from the situation, look down, take a breath, um, sort of de-roll for a second and ask yourself, am I the player comfortable with this thing? And if the answer is no, then even if your character would do it, then you say no. And if the answer is yes, then you can go into, does my character want this? Or, or, or would it be interesting for the story, depending on you know how you role play in situations like that? And I, um, I'm just really excited about people potentially using this on a regular basis and not just um, trusting, you know, that uh, that other people might check in with them, but also normalizing checking in with themselves. That makes a lot of sense. I really love how this whole discussion is not only about, you know, how cons can help people when they don't feel safe, but also taking personal responsibility for how you're feeling and for, you know, your own con experience. Because as you say, um, it, it's not like, even if somebody asks you, are you okay? You may not know. <laughs> for exactly. That moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I know for me, I've been in a couple of different situations where I've been harassed. And in one of those situations, I was a little bit tipsy and I actually punched the guy. <laughs> I'm glad I did. Right, right. Um, but, you know, in another situation, I just froze because I, I was so not used to that behavior that it took me probably an hour or two to really decompress to the point where I was like, hey, wait a minute, I might need to talk to someone about this. Right. And that that is one of the important parts of how we structure our response responses to complaints is that you can come to us and say I just need to talk this out 
without launching a full complaint and without us like going and we're going to talk to this guy or this this person and we're going to set them straight no we're going to hear you out and if you're like yeah it would really be helpful if someone sat with me just while i told the person that that wasn't okay or yes mm-hmm. i feel like this was severe enough that i'd like authorities involved or god no god i don't like i just want to talk about it but i don't want it to go any further like all of those sure. levels of possible uh uh response are baked into what we train our staff to do so that in your case it, maybe you decompressed and went I just need to talk to another human about this and get validated that that was weird and creepy. And we don't go charging in Mm -hmm. to fix it until we figured out what you actually need. So those self check-ins become so important because if I say, okay, so what, what support do you need right now? And you're still in an emotionally fragile state and are like, I, I, I don't know. Like it's kind (laughs) of my job to hand you a granola bar, a cup of tea and a tissue and wait (laughs) until you've processed that. Um, and so conventions sure. and other, or, like any space where you get a bunch of humans together, you're going to discover that you have to, to make transitions and adjustments to whatever safety tools are available um, because they don't always work, right? Like some, some conventions like ReaderCon several years ago was my cautionary tale where they had a zero tolerance policy. And then they were in a situation where it was really hard to enact that for whatever internal reasons. So they got caught and pinched and it scared off a bunch of conventions that were like, oh, we don't want to end up like with a social media nightmare on our hands. And if they'd had a policy Mm -hmm. that was, it's safe for you to come and talk to us and we will work with you to figure out what next, um, they wouldn't have blown up the way they did. And so there's an amount of creating scaffolding without painting yourself into a corner and being able to say, okay, let's talk about this. What next? What do you need? Um, Sorry, I'm reading things down. I'm like, that. <laughs> also, as a, as a teacher, I am overjoyed, Abby, at your use of scaffolding. It's, yeah, the, that's, that's my favorite. <laughs> it's like, it, it's building term. something into a system that allows people to more easily use it. It's yeah, best. and, uh, you know, it, because I know that my, what we do today it's going to look nothing like what we do five years from now when we know more about how this stuff works and when we've practiced it more and seen what does and doesn't work. And what works at our conventions may not, because a lot of our safety systems at my conventions is I can go hide under Abby's shoulder and she's not going to let anyone oh. get to me. Um, if someone's feeling vulnerable, I, especially at Metatopia, I make a point. My entire job at Metatopia is to be visible in the lobby area Uh, So that people know that they can come and talk to me. Not every convention has that resource. So they're going to have to iterate some other plan for emotional support. Yep. Uh, Absolutely. I wanted to comment about bar behavior because bar behavior is a thing that makes uh, conventions inherently less feminist and less family friendly. And um, I think that the more we talk about the fact that large groups of nerds who get drunk have different boundaries than 9 a.m. nerds who are sober. Um and if we don't take that into account and look at it, then we create all sorts of messy gray areas. Okay, can yep. you say just a little bit more about what, what do you mean by bar behavior? Um, so, for example, what the types of jokes and conversation that are acceptable at 2 a.m. when you're at a bar with a couple of drinks sure. is different from what you are willing to tolerate at 9 a.m. when you're at the playtesting table. 
That is absolutely true. <laughs> and so contextual boundaries are a thing that I feel like um, in general, convention culture, but also like if you if you look at um, trade show behavior, uh, DEF CON or even other professional organizations where you get a bunch of people together where business happens at the bar, those contextual <laughs> boundaries and the fact that we c- confuse like media presented bar behavior like hitting on people that you've worked with for 20 years um deconstructing that and using those self-check-ins to say is this behavior i would engage in if i was fully sober or this was 9 a.m becomes a tool that is currently underutilized that's very true and it just occurs to me thinking about you know bar behavior in general that so much of what we have baked in is that men are predators and women are prey. And when you have that dynamic in a bar, that's going to shift the dynamic immediately when you're talking about business. Um, I know there was something that happened recently, and I'm not going to name any names, but there was a discussion going on about safety and harassment, et cetera, on social media. And um, a woman had an opinion about it, a thought based on her own experience. And then a man who was very well known in the community actually threatened her career, said, you know, I don't agree with you. And because you don't agree with me, I'm, you know, not, I'm going to make sure you never work in this industry again. And that's absolutely, you know, horrible behavior. But it just occurs to me that in a bar situation where, you know, women are sort of taught to be more meek or accepting or whatever, that 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 could be really damaging to those after hours negotiations. Or just as toxic, we're also taught that when you're when you have alcohol in your system, it's okay to cut loose. And do you want bar you to be what your colleagues are thinking of you the next time you're negotiating right. a contract? The the entire the addition of alcohol in an environment where people might or might not be socially repressed and may not be and may be circumstantially marginalized because they're nerds in their regular life. If they turn around and reproduce what they think the power structures are in the outside world among people who don't have that uh, circumstantial marginalization, they they bring those bad behaviors into that environment in a way that the self-check-ins would help with. That's absolutely true. Well, and I know, you know, for my, for me personally, my rule is always like, you know, okay, I can have one drink maybe, but you know, to, to relax a little bit with colleagues, but that's as far as I'm going to go, you know, unless I'm specifically at a convention that I'm not working and I'm there to have fun with my friends. And maybe I have friends who are also in the game industry, but you know what that boundary is. Um, but it's kind of sad that I have to make sure that I'm the one maintaining that, that we can't all just, you know be adults well and some of it also uh, i'll turn the talking stick over in just a moment some of it is also the contextualized boundaries um i don't just as an as a concrete example like i said i've been running conventions for 20 years and one of the things that startled me is that i have actually processed more out and out like so and so was speaking about my body in a way that was inappropriate complaints the day after somebody has been playing uh, Cards Against Humanity. So we don't put Cards Against Humanity on the schedule because um, people don't recontextualize those boundaries. Where at 3 a.m., if someone makes a joke about their own breasts, it's okay to participate in that joke. 
But at 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. the next morning, that topic is now off limits and the boundaries are different. And so setting up an environment where there are like trade show boundaries during the day and then what happens at a trade show stays at a trade show boundaries in the evening just gets messy. It does. Yeah. Okay. I can definitely see that. Stephanie, you mentioned um, normalizing when people, um, you know, want to set those boundaries. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yes, absolutely. Um, I... So I, um, this, uh, this is a strange uh, LARP anecdote from uh, this past year. I designed with a friend a, uh, an alien dating LARP in a... Uh, <laughs> Sounds fun. I, I, I swear it is bizarrely relevant to bar culture. It's going to get weird in a second. So, um, so this alien dating LARP is set in this dystopian alien universe where all young alien adults are forced to go on a government-mandated retreat to find their perfect partner. And a big part of this game is asking each other on dates. Mm-hmm. And as a designer, I, uh, I realized that I had this really interesting design challenge here of how do I use this game as an opportunity to teach people to more graciously accept rejection and to be more comfortable saying no in public spaces. Mm-hmm. So, um, so what I decided to do is uh, I made it a ritual of the game that every time some, uh, it, it was time to ask each other on dates, which was of course a formal public process in this dystopian alien universe, <laughs> um, everyone would stand in a circle and uh, from across the circle, someone would say to someone else, let's say I'm asking Abby on a date, uh, I would say, Abby, would you like to go on a date with me? And then Abby, of course, can say yes or no. Uh, and if Abby says no, then everyone in the circle cheers and applauds because in this dystopian alien universe, we uh, only say yes to things we are absolutely sure about, as you know, we should in real life. But, you know, um, so, so everyone applauds this person who has said no. And then the person who uh, said no gets the power to ask someone they would like to go on a date to go on a date with them. But before they do that, the person who asked them, who was denied, publicly thanks them for saying no. So, so wow. the process is, I ask you, if you say no, everybody cheers, and then I thank you for saying no, because you have just made the next you know, 20 minutes of our lives in-game and out-of-game better because you said no to going on a date that you would not have wanted to go on or you would have not enjoyed, which would have been bad for both of us. And so I, I wonder what would happen um, both in all games and in life at cons and outside of cons if we just totally normalized people thanking each other when we set boundaries or say no to something. Because saying no really is a gift to both people. Right? I can't tell you how sh- you, I can't tell yeah. you how shocked people are when I turn to them and say, "Actually, I really appreciate that you just gave me a straight answer on that. That lets me titrate my my response." And so, thank you for being honest with me. And people are like, "Uh, what?" <laughs> um, I, I don't, so it's also, it's not just it's like the thanking people and the acknowledging that that thank you matters because people are like well why would you thank me for that that's just communication and you're like ah, no it's not nope the fact that you don't know how to say you're welcome means that this isn't normal <laughs> it's yeah. absolutely true and I know one thing that um, I'm really grateful for on my con committee is that we have one person who is kind of our naysayer 
He always asks the really difficult questions. He always plays the devil's advocate. And I know sometimes it irritates other people on the con committee, but I thank him every time that he comes to a board meeting because it means so much to me to have somebody sitting there punching holes in everything that we're doing so that we know what those potential pitfalls might be. And he's always a little bit shocked. I mean, I think he's gotten used to it by now because we've been together for five years on this, but um, it, the, the first few times he was like, uh, you're welcome. <laughs> so yeah, I love that. The ability to, you know, thank somebody for rejecting or for criticizing or, or just for giving you the answer that, that you needed to hear, but maybe wasn't necessarily the polite answer or the expected answer. Yep, absolutely. And, and I think that especially in uh, LARPs or other role play games, um, when someone says no to someone else, they've just automatically made the game better because they've avoided, you know, a potentially really awkward or triggering or traumatic, you know, role play situation. Exactly. So. Absolutely. Well, and I would like to shift gears if we can just a little bit um, to talk more about your experiences as a woman in the gaming industry in general. So we've talked a lot about, um, you know, how to create safer spaces and a few of the tools that conventions are using to um, make that happen. So Stephanie, I know that you are a game designer. You said that you've you know, been a teacher. So kind of what has your experience been? What obstacles, if any, have you come up to being a game designer who's a woman? And what are some of the things you've done to overcome those? So I'm... The first thing that actually comes to mind is uh, the experience that I had when I was playtesting this alien dating LARP, <laughs> which which I'm not even like currently working on, but it's just it's such an interesting microcosm of all this stuff that we're currently talking about. Um, when I was playtesting it, the first time I ran it, I ran it for a group of all men. Um, I uh, I think only one or two of them. Uh, were LGBT in in any way? Uh, everyone else. Uh, so it was it was a majority group of straight men, um, and it was really fascinating for me running this game for them as a woman and teaching them to turn each other down and to graciously accept rejection uh, as as a woman. And they, it just it it was this very weird like kind of awkward space where um where, where these men were uh kind of they, they certainly weren't making fun of it but they like clearly felt uncomfortable uh sure. that i was like making them ask each other on dates and making them say no to each other and then making them cheer and then making them thank each other for <laughs> for the rejection um and uh and the the debrief of that game was just fascinating oh it i was can imagine really really interesting and then of course a week later I play tested this game with a really diverse group of queer gamers of like lots of um uh, you know lots of different genders and uh it was it was just delightful like it was <laughs> it was much less awkward um people were just like really delighted by this idea of cheering when people said no mm -hmm. and and just seeing seeing those different uh, norms that had already been baked into these communities as expressed by their discomfort with the mechanics was, yeah, was just really telling and really interesting. Well, and I, I listen to the Dan Savage show a lot, um, Savage Love. I don't know if you guys have ever yeah. heard of it, but um, what he talks about a lot um, is that he's, he's a queer man and that when he's giving love and sex advice to people, that 
he finds it's it's much easier when he's talking to LGBT people because the queer community in general has had to create our own language to talk to each other. We've had to be more expressive and thoughtful. There aren't as many scripts to follow. Exactly. So, you know, the the advice and things that he's giving are, are easier, I think, for people in that community than it is for the street men. And you hear the street men calling in and their their questions. And it's well, it's just a hilarious show. But um, but it is, you know, endearing to hear um, street men learning how to be more like queers. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's, that is a really good summary of what happened. Yep. <laughs> Well, and if you haven't thought about it, you should totally apply for some kind of social sciences grant because I would love to see like a book or something written about this game and its impact on gender roles and, um, you know, how it's hopefully going to change people's thought processes about rejection and uh, dating. I mean, this is just amazing, fascinating stuff you're doing here. So, um, so actually I wrote this game with my friend, Allison Cole for her thesis at the NYU Uh Game Center. And she did publish this game and the four or five others that she wrote with a few other people into a collection of uh, queer games about love and romance and relationships. Oh, well, when we get to the end of the show, you'll have to tell us all where to get it. Cause yes, yes, I can certainly send you a link. Yes. So Abby, what about you as a con runner and a gamer? Kind of what, what has been your experience in these 20 years of running cons as a woman? So... I'll tell you honestly and lovingly, I hate that question because I've I've done so many of the women in gaming and the like 101 let's talk about our feelings panels. Sure. So um, my tendency is to sort of uh, sidestep that question. Um, and it's, it's a valid question, but at the same time, um, what I can say is that globally and not just as a woman what i have seen and the thing that i most right now am churning on about my experiences in quote the industry are that um teaching everybody to engage in the emotional labor involved in maintaining a community has been an interesting sort of stop and go weird experience where there aren't any real like like we were saying about rejection there's no script for teaching people that it's okay in a very diverse community to say, hey, you look like you're having a really terrible time. Do you want to talk? Um, and with Metatopia, I've definitely had the experience of looking around a room and realizing that I've got mascara or tears from four to five people on my shoulders at 5 p.m. on Saturday and going, I need to go change and I also need to find someone else to do some of this emotional labor because there's just not enough of me. Um, and sure. so there's something uh, I'm, I'm actively chewing on and actively working to deconstruct what the influences are that lead to gaming being this, this really fabulous, really fascinating, very transcendental experience where people step outside of space and time and really get to explore their best selves and do things that they wouldn't do in their real lives and bring their best selves to the table and then they also turn around and try to reconstruct really destructive, really toxic power structures because suddenly they're a bigger fish in a smaller pond. And so there's, there's really interesting, really fascinating socialized stuff 
that happens that toxifies that that sacred space. And so a lot of my work in the last two years has been less about my experience as a woman. Once I once I acknowledged that my gender had an influence on my role in, quote unquote, the industry and my experiences, because for a while I was like, no, like Vinny has already always treated me as an equal. I've been, you know, the the public facing person for double exposure for years. And once I deconstructed that and was like, oh, oh, someone explained to me what a microaggression was. Right. And that completely changed my view of the world. Um, and so can you explain that to our audience in case they don't know? A microaggression is I've heard it described as a death by a thousand paper cuts. And it is the little that you just don't even notice and you brush off like um, being the only woman at the table and having all of the dudes act like you're censoring them because they can't make crass jokes about the waitress. Oh, oh, I hate that. I hate that. Or <laughs> having my appearance commented on in a way that would never happen to a dude. Or having people mm-hmm. make in, I, you know, I, I feel like because I started out at 18, I've hit the crunchy, crusty, I have no time for your <laughs> grandmother phase really early. Because someone <laughs> will say something completely objectifying and I'll be like, did you actually hear what just came out of your mouth? or someone will try taking credit for a thing that I've said in a meeting. And it took me five years to teach my, of actively saying, did you hear what just happened there? Uh, And working together on a daily basis for my husband to start saying, oh, oh, wait a minute. She just said that. Did it taste better coming out of your mouth? Right? (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't realize that my... Um, my persona, my perception that I was just too tough to be bothered by that shit was actually facilitating and empowering those people to keep being that person. Um, but getting sure. hit on because people decided they liked my politics. And instead of being like, hey, I really respect you as an ally and I'm glad we're in this fight together, getting the, would you like to go up to my hotel room? And I was just like, Whoa. and I had normalized those things. Right. I was just like, yeah, well, that's the cost of being a woman in the industry and did not listen to myself say that sentence in my head to realize that my gender was affecting how people were treating me. Wow. So I now I call it out when I see it and I'm like, hey, it's not cool to do that to me just because of X. You can't touch me. You can't. You at at Origins, I was with a staff member who had just gotten a new tattoo and was wearing a tank top. And someone walked up and started to touch her tattoo. And we both growled at them. And, like, the, they jumped back and, you know, did the, the kindergarten kid pull their hands up to their chest in the, oh, right, we look with our hands, not with our eyes. Um, but there's a lot of that that, for me, um, because I've started responding to it in the moment, has become sort of less where I'm spending my cycles, my brain cycles. And I spend a lot of time looking at and going, well, why do they think that's appropriate? Under what circumstances in the outside world do you walk up to a stranger and touch them without permission and not expect to get punched in the face? That is a profound question. So... And I don't have the answer. If we had the answer, right, I would spend a lot less time slamming my way back into my hotel room and announcing that I deserve cookies for not having punched somebody. (laughs) Well, you always deserve cookies for the amazing job that you do. So we need to wrap up. So, um, Abby, where can people go to learn more about you and the amazing conferences that you run? Uh, 
www.dexposure.com. And I strongly suggest that people just add the slash home.html to avoid the splash page that needs to be replaced, but we just don't have time because we're too busy running events. Um, or <laughs> finding me on Twitter at Avenel, which is A-V like victory, O-N like Nancy, E-L-L-E. Excellent. And Stephanie, what about you? Where can people find your games and learn more about what you're doing? Um, so honestly, uh, at this point in my life, I am doing so many different things that live in different spaces that it really is easiest to just find me on Facebook. Um, okay. Because, you know, you could find my graduate student account at Columbia Teachers College. You could find my work account. Um, but, you know, they're, they're just all different things. So it's, yeah, it's easiest to just find me on Facebook. Great. And what was the name of that game package again? Yes. Uh, so you can find Allison Kieran Cole's Anthology of Intimacy at allisonkcole.com slash anthology of intimacy with little hyphens in between those words. Perfect. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation, ladies, and I can't wait to see you guys again, um, hopefully at a conference soon. And um, Abby, when is the next event that's happening after Metatopia? Uh, after Metatopia is Dreamation, which is the weekend after President's Day in Morristown, New Jersey. Um, as soon as we finish Metatopia, the registration page will go up on the uh, Double Exposure website. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you both so much for being here. And this has been another episode of Holy Crit. <laughs> Holy Crit.